Oh, no, like, those are Eggo waffles. Oh, literal <laughs> trash bags. <laughs> yeah, I like to age them in the garage for a little while before eating them. <laughs> Hello, I'm Annette, and thanks for listening to my podcast. Today, I'm excited to have a special episode for Father's Day. Uh, our three boys are going to interview their father. Uh, on this particular interview, I've asked the eldest, Walker, to be the lead, and uh, they're going to talk about... Uh, I didn't I'm not sure what you. all they're going to talk about. <laughs> this is a monarchy. You darling. can be next. This is primogeniture. So they're going to interview uh, their dad, my husband, Dr. Taylor Carlisle, um, and I think it will be a fun interview. I hope y'all enjoy. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mom. Here's Dad. All righty. Hey, well, Dad. Hello. How's it going? Hello. Good. Can y'all hear yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. Welcome. This is the lead prosecutor, Walker Carlisle, over here. I've been researching the Nuremberg trials for my, uh, my list of questions, so I'm, I'm ready to, uh, yeah. Oh, so um, we can we can kind of just uh, see how this evolves, but I have just a handful of questions Um Starting with a focus on learning in general and feeding eventually into storytelling. So um, the, uh, the premise of all of this is that, Dad, you read a lot and you learn a lot. And you always have. And I think that you have a lot of information that you've gleaned over the years <laughs> from all that. And I think that it would make a great podcast. So here we are. And um, so just to, start, to kick things off, uh, you've shared with me that you have a system of book rotation where you alternate between reading different types of books. Uh, what is your rotation pattern and why do you think it has worked for you so well? Well, it's a rough pattern. Uh, number one, I wanted to say I am a lifetime student. I never quit learning. And I think, uh, you know, you you should have that attitude about learning everywhere. You never get done, really. And I have, fortunately, I have a kind of a job that requires me to learn something new all the time anyway. My system and I've followed this very roughly for many years, is I like, uh, I like fiction, and uh, I like all kinds of fiction, and uh, I enjoy reading fiction, but I also very much enjoy history and science, and so I try to alternate between reading fiction and history or science, like I'm reading the book The Gene right now, which is an excellent book. Uh, I read Sapiens not too long ago, another another good uh, scientific book. And then I read uh, biographies, a little bit less on the biography than I used to, but I enjoy biographies. Uh, uh, some of the, the, my favorite books have been uh, biographies. So that. I, I sometimes I'll take one or the other and I'll read several science books in a row, but then I'll always, I always roughly go back to that rotational system. Everett? Well, I would ask. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't have to say. No, 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 no. I actually have something that's pertinent. 
Um, at a young age, I distinctly remember that you enjoyed reading the encyclopedia. <laughs> so I did. Clear, clearly, this rotation has been fine-tuned since then. But, uh, what what about just the desire to get that information uh, prompted reading to be such a focal point of your your life? Because you know, I I don't know how to explain how I think, but I remember one of the most exciting days of my young life was when I was like, I think 10 or 11, and we got an Encyclopedia Britannica, for because I'd already read all of the world book, and <laughs> I, I need, I need to, and I would just spend hours just opening up the encyclopedia and reading about just anything. I have to confess, I still do that a little bit now with Google. <laughs> 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 is, is it true that Britannica was a derivative of World Book that it just copied all the same stuff? <laughs> the Encyclopedia Britannica was the uh, gold, the gold standard of encyclopedias. I mean, the World Book was a cheapy American version. It's almost like a. Uh, Cub Scout version of uh, encyclopedia. You know, the news but, media uh, is going to take that one clip from this podcast and just <laughs> spin it as Taylor Carlisle eviscerates world book. <laughs> so I don't even think they have the world book anymore. And I gave away our copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica with great regret, but I have to admit that in the modern world, encyclopedias are completely outmoded. <laughs> Wikipedia wow, we so finally got him good. on record. <laughs> <laughs> the plot so, Dad, what's Doesn't your favorite time of history? Them. What's, like, are you a Byzantian kind of guy? or <laughs> You know, I have to say that changes from time to time. I read a great book a few years ago called 1453, which is about the fall of Constantinople to... Uh, to the Turks, to uh, Mehmet, the conqueror. And it got me to uh, thinking about the whole idea of the Byzantine Empire, something that I think is woefully undertaught in our school system. And so I went back and educated myself. I, I, I read some books about the Byzantines. I got Walker interested. <laughs> yeah, so. oh, I, well, I read you that know. book, too, the yeah. 1453. Yeah, yeah. Got me I, didn't, interested. I, didn't, I didn't read that tome that you guys <laughs> yeah. were working your way through. Yeah, but. The, the 1453 was the good is a remarkable, but, uh, <laughs> it's a remarkably good, small, you know, relatively short, but very informative book that gives you a lot of background on that whole area. Uh, I like uh, the the Greco-Roman period. I uh, I've I've read a fair bit about about that. You know, Thucydides uh, he wrote in the 400s BC um, in the Peloponnesian War. You know, fascinating reading for any well for me. Uh, <laughs> and even even, uh, even some like I like to read about. Uh, the World War II era, and uh, I read Shelby Foote's The Civil War. So, I mean, uh, there's lots of uh, different eras that have their interests. So it kind of changes from time to time. So another question I have is, do you view your reading and self-study as an informal continuation of your formal education or as a separate exercise? I think I see it more as a continuation of my education. Uh, being a, a doctor, you know, you have to know a lot of 
things about a lot of different areas. And I think a classical education will, first of all, it helps anybody, but particularly when you have a broad field of of uh, practice like I do. Uh, for example, if I'm taking care of a school teacher, you know, or a history professor, I like to have some common ground that I can connect with that person. And so uh, I, uh, uh, I will use my knowledge of history or literature to uh, connect with people like that. Or if it's a science teacher, we can talk physics, um, you know, things, things of that nature. And it also just helps, I think, anybody. The, the, the more you know about the world, uh, I think the easier it is to try to understand other people and the world around you. That, that kind of... Uh, oh, Darwin, did you have something? No, go ahead. No, oh, no, 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 no. Well, I was going to say that kind of feeds into another one I wrote down, um, and I, I went through a couple of drafts of it, so I'm kind of looking at the different <laughs> places I wrote it down. <laughs> but um, so learning and storytelling can be thought of as opposite sides of the same coin. Um, the heads and tails of the human oral tradition. Storytelling is more than just entertainment. It's how we share information, how we conceptualize much of our understanding of the world, and how we bond with one another. Um, on the other hand, the desire for reality to fit a narrative structure often leads to logical fallacy. As a doctor and a storyteller, how do you balance that tension when communicating complex ideas to your patients and colleagues? Uh, I, I think that is a Great question. I mean, it's something I've that's I've, why I've thought about. Mom chose the eldest to do this. <laughs> well, for example, uh, I'm both uh, attracted to and a little bit repe- repelled by journalism because the whole the way they introduce journalism is to say, "Don't tell about men; tell about the man." I think that's how they say it or something. In I've other words, said that in my life. <laughs> you're always saying that. That old right. journalism trope. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and, and, and journalism is mostly storytelling and because all of us are attracted to stories. What is fiction other than storytelling? And I love stories. Uh, on the other hand, I have to, the science part of me has to say, now, wait a minute, you can't, uh, do science by anecdote, and anybody with scientific knowledge knows that's a classic, you know, difficult trap to fall into is to do, do I do it? I do both. I use science and I use storytelling because people connect better with a story than they do with dry statistics, most people. And so, yeah, I tell stories, I tell stories to my patients, uh, a class oh, here, just off the top of my head, uh, people will say, uh, how do I know the staph infection is gone? And I always say, you won't know, I'll guess at it. It'll be an educated guess, but, and then I'll tell them a story. The story I like to tell is, okay, I had a patient one time who had gotten shot in the rear end in World War II, and he sat and convalesced in a military hospital for a year, and that was penicillin had just been introduced, and they gave him penicillin for what was described vaguely as a staph infection, and he got better and eventually went home and lived his life, and 
had no problems until around 1990. I'd just been practicing for a couple of years. And then he was involved in a car wreck in his 60s or 70s. I can't remember. But uh, he suddenly started draining from the back of his pelvis where he'd been shot. And orthopedist took him to surgery and dug out like an old fragment of a bullet from the 1940s and had khaki fragments like filaments attached to it. And uh, it grew out of Staph aureus. So I tell people, now how am I supposed to know that it won't come back 40 years from now? But people love that story. The and old it, it, classic it Carlisle to... staph infections story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's a story that'll stick in your mind. It's stuck in my mind. Yeah, it's a great visual, you know. It's... <laughs> Well, and people, uh, they don't ask after that. They'll say, well, I guess I can. <laughs> they stop talking but, to me. <laughs> well, if it can lie around dormant for 45 years, I guess I'm going to quit worrying about it. So speaking of the heads and tails. Of, Are you uh, a pre-Cambrian or a post-Cambrian kind of, kind of guy, Dad? <laughs> I like the Cambrian period because nothing happened much before that except for geology. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, the explosion of life, I suppose, is just not an interesting right. concept to you. At least the explosion of life that we can actually measure and look at. Yeah. Yeah. What is something you've learned about that significantly changed how you see the world? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, something I've learned, did you, did you say? Yeah, yeah, just anything that about. you've learned about or, or read or anything you just want to make up on the spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I learn stu new stuff all the time, and I like to think that we are all malleable enough to adapt and change as we go on. Uh, even though my brain was better when I was in my 30s and just starting practice, I feel like I am a better doctor now that I've gotten older just from learning to listen to people. Well, the saying we have in medicine is that the patient will tell you what's wrong if you'll just listen to him and let him talk. And I've learned a lot of that. You know, you have to, you have to listen to all kinds of different people, some educated, some not, but they're all humans and they're able to help you and tell you if you are willing to keep your mouth shut and listen to them. So one of the most valuable things I've learned is to listen. And sometimes you have to listen hard because we all have a different ability of telling stories or events. You know, we have people, we say, I say, like, well, I have summarizers and detail describers. Uh, mostly we do not like summarizers. In other words, they're like, okay, well, I got, I started getting sick and I got an infection. I'm, I'm, I has, I can't, almost can't restrain myself from saying, what do you mean by infection? You know, I want to, is your nose running? You're coughing up blood? Is your head hurt? Are you the federal and, government? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that doesn't work very well with schizophrenics. Are they detailed describers typically? Or? <laughs> yeah, but only their details are all factually wrong or imaginary. How how seriously do you take the um, possibility that your patient is lying to you? Because I remember that being a popular theme of the show House was that everybody lies to you. Is that really a major concern? No. You know, I, I liked the show House, and I thought the character was extremely well played, and they glamorized the kind of work I do uh, in a way that made it attractive television. But I didn't agree with everything he said. My own opinion is that people will mostly tell you the truth if you have the right rapport with them. And that means listening, like I just said. Um, people will tell you, not not always. They will lie to you sometimes, or they will dissemble, or they will misrepresent things. But, y'all, if you're a good detective, you can find that. You can trip people up <laughs> pretty well. I mean, Trick people into curing them. <laughs> <laughs> well, the trick, to, like to all detective work, is to ask questions that radiate out from those questions. So if you have a lie, it's hard to prepare for every variation around that lie. That's why detectives are always asking multiple slightly related or slightly unrelated questions. They're trying to catch you lying. Um, Fortunately in my work, I expect trust, and they expect trust from me. Um, We have a pact with patients that what you tell me is confidential and private, and I really want you to tell me the truth because I can't help you if you don't tell me everything in a truthful way. Most of the time that works. And if it doesn't work, I mean, then uh, I may not be able to do my job as good as I want to, but I am also proud of the fact that I trust people and I'd rather be deceived than be so cynical as Dr. House as to think that everybody's lying to me all the time. I don't think I could practice medicine that way. Uh, who Did you have a favorite teacher growing up? Let's see. I'm trying. Oh, I think Mrs. Sutton, my third grade teacher, she believed in me, and uh, she uh, she thought I was a great artist, which <laughs> I think she was being kind. But uh, I remember she encouraged me a lot, and um, you know I was nine years old, and you know kind of at a impressionable young age, and you know any kind of positive feedback you got from your teachers was was uh, was helpful, help helped to make you work harder and and think that you can accomplish something. Did you have a least favorite teacher? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Mrs. Tipton. <laughs> if she's listening somewhere, I just want to say to her. <laughs> <laughs> There's your cold open, though. She was... <laughs> She was my fifth grade teacher, and she and I did not get along. And, well, and she, I, I had terrible handwriting, and for some reason, she thought 
that I was writing bad on purpose and she would make me sit during my favorite time like art hour and write my name over and over in cursive and I couldn't do it. Yeah, she just humiliated me in front of the other class members. I still can't write to this day. Yeah, finally, it's her fault. I, but you're doing it on I, purpose, aren't you? <laughs> I, I quit cursive writing a long time ago, and I did a kind of a fast, illegible printing. <laughs> and and now, of course, everything is either dictated or typed, yeah. so I don't have to write much anymore. I sit to myself, and I can usually dope out what I wrote, but not always. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great phrase. <laughs> Um, so what about like the, uh, the dawn of industrial agriculture? Like, do you have any hot takes on that? Yeah, I think that's a great topic, Dar. <laughs> um, you know, much of the, there's a lot of work going to be done in the next 30 years on what we call the, uh, the, uh, normal human microbiome, biota, the, in other words, that the, the, the trillions of bacteria that live in your body, in your bowel, around your mouth and teeth and your skin, your hair. Uh, those, I think, at the beginning of agriculture, which was whatever, 8,000 years ago, um, people started, in, they, they quit moving around in hunter-gatherer groups where they largely avoided disease, and they settled down into farming communities, and they also... Uh, uh, domesticated animals, you know, dogs, then pigs, goats, you know, cow, cows. And they ended up getting sick from pathogens of animals that jumped over into humans. And probably were there were a lot of bad epidemics back then in the day before we developed kind of a herd immunity. But the other thing it did was eating grains or what we call monoculture, like rice and wheat, it changes the bacteria that live in your bowel. Instead of eating, if you're eating meat and natural fruits and things like that, what what, what they call uh, what is what is it they call that uh, paleo caveman pescatarian not not pes- paleo paleo diet yeah, yeah. paleo diet. Uh, and there's a kind of a fad about that right now. It's like you're okay. You're going back to the old way of eating, so you can get better bacteria. Of course, there's no proof of that, but it's kind of an interesting fad. But I think what is actually true is that the modern industrialized world eating highly processed food has a much different microbiome and a lot simpler for one thing. And probably it makes us more prone to modern diseases. Who knows, like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, uh, <coughs> certainly autoimmune disease. If you look at like primitive uh, places, I don't, I don't mean that by primitive humans, but <laughs> but like Africa or South America where people are not as industrialized, they have a lot less autoimmune disease than we have here. Now they have got a lot more worms and, you know, things like that. But What's um, your favorite worm? <laughs> oh, the guinea worm probably because it's, it uh, it's kind of the symbol of medicine, the whole <laughs> snake around the stick thing, like yeah, the, there you go. the staff of Aesculapius. It, that is actually said to, to have derived from one of the few things doctors could do 2,500 oh, yeah, years ago, which is to, they, 
they could wrap a, they could get a guinea worm out and wrap it around a stick and pull it out of your body. So that was considered kind of a, a physician art. Of course, they couldn't do almost anything else. Well, they could cut off diseased have limbs. You, have you ever things, pulled but, out a guinea worm with a stick? Nah, not uh, unfortunately. Or, or fortunately, <laughs> are almost extinct. <laughs> they've uh, they've almost successfully eradicated the guinea worm, so I'll probably never see a case. What's of it. your favorite highly processed food? <laughs> I'm have to say I have a weakness for rice. Okay. Well, that's a fairly tame I, uh, answer. <laughs> I'm growing up in the in the deep Mine south, you know. Of course, hot uh, pockets. <laughs> I love rice head. I used to like those hot pockets, but uh, your mom made me quit eating them. So. <laughs> I can, but I do think your question about uh, uh, agriculture. Uh, even though it allowed the population to explode, uh, I think we did sacrifice a lot as humans by just eating uh, monocultured uh, foods and just a handful of different grains and foods. So at, there will be a ton of research in the next 20 to 30 years about that. I predict. Do you think the pyramids were for storing grain, you know, like back <laughs> in the day or was that like... It, I, Walker's a better one to answer yeah, that. In, he knows in more Civilization about the Three, the pyramids put a <laughs> granary in every city. So I am led to believe that yes, they facilitated grain storage based on based on the Sid Meier's I think they, gaming. Uh, I think they facilitated passage into the uh, nether world by Pharaoh. Do, do you think myself. that was effective? Do you think there is a nether world where only pharaohs exist and their servants? Well, it didn't work because ne every single one of those tombs got raided and robbed. Oh, yeah, that's true. So. Uh, so. Uh, the only one that didn't was uh, the only one we found, Tutankhamun. And he was a minor pharaoh. I mean, imagine what Ramses's uh, loot was like. And I mean, it had to have been 10 times what Tutankhamun <laughs> was. I do feel like mom is going to have a strong opinion if we don't ask him about father related. R well, that, that was, <laughs> that was uh, the other part of well, the storytelling. Yeah, you, you can ask. You can ask. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, we, we are about at the halfway point, and I had that <laughs> I had constructed that question about storytelling as a segue that uh, many of my fondest memories from childhood are the bedtime stories you would tell us, Dad. So I'd like to introduce a few of them to mom's audience. Um, okay. So uh, before the great uh, serialized and episodic stories um, that Darwin and Everett are familiar with, there are at least three that stand out to me from uh, when we lived in New Orleans, so I was five years old or younger. <laughs> and uh, one of those was called Chicken Head, <laughs> One of the first ones I made up. For Do you it. remember yeah. that story? Do you remember? Because uh, I remember it. I, but I'm curious. I vaguely it. remember it. I I remember it was a uh, the I warned you about Chicken Head. He lived down in like the basement behind the door, <laughs> and naturally, your curiosity. I told I warned you never to go down there, and. Your curiosity eventually got the better of you, <laughs> and you opened the door, and who should be there but 
chicken head. <laughs> Which was me with a chicken head mask on. Wait, so this was a story this or was this was dad just yeah. terrorizing you? Yeah, yeah. No, this was in Metairie. We didn't have a basement, but... Uh, okay. Right. It was a fixer. More envisioning dad just spending most of his time with a chicken head on waiting for you to give in to temptation. Yeah, the logistics of the story well, don't make a lot of sense. Well, wasn't there another no, one? Like a cockroach-inspired one? Oh, yeah. That was the story of the giant cockroach that crashed through the oh. wall. <laughs> yeah, that was a story I told uh, Walker that uh, when mom wasn't around. And <laughs> one of the things that, that uh, we Good had a lot of... Good thing she's not around and, now. Yeah. <laughs> edit this part out, darling. <laughs> so, I, and Walker was really young, and and uh, we had a lot of cockroaches. That's one thing we had no shortage of in uh, in New Orleans. And and Walker was naturally curious about him, and so I decided to make up a story about a giant cockroach that crashed through the wall of the house, and and he uh, rampaged around. I mean, I think King Kong like or something, but it, it was. Um, Walker was so fascinated by the story that the next night when I was gone on call or something, he asked Mom, he said, I want to hear about the story about the giant cockroach that crashes through the wall. So I got an irate call from your mother at work. Did you really tell him a story about a giant cockroach crashing through the wall? I Actually, I was in my early days of learning how to tell stories with Walker. I read him all the books. We read Frog and Toad. We read Owl at Home. We read all of the Dr. Seuss books. And eventually, like every little human that's learning, he wanted to hear something that he hadn't heard before. And so I realized if I was going to supply that, I had to just make them up myself. And so I wasn't really very good at it initially. Like I just had to kind of make stuff up. I had to pickle top and carrot head, <laughs> two characters that lived in the refrigerator. And, that was a great one. That's on my list. <laughs> you guys are yeah. so your way through storytelling. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I would like make up everyday things like the things that lived in the refrigerator and Walker would have adventures of them at with them at night. Uh had another character called Old Speck, yeah. the king snake. And he would eat the dangerous rattlesnake. And then Mr. Green Frog was in that one. And so was who else was oh, in there? Oh, gosh. The, there was Mr. Cottontail. Bushytail, the or, squirrel. Yeah, um, Red Wing Blackbird. Um, yeah, yeah. Mr. Blue so Jay. So I had all uh -oh. Mr. Blue Jay, Mr. Green Frog. And we, uh, and that all took place like in a swamp there outside of New Orleans. And, <laughs> that he could kind of visualize and old speck would always come to the rescue when Mr. Green Frog was just getting ready to get bitten by the diamondback rattlesnake and speck would eat the rattlesnake. <laughs> I, I actually had dozens of variations. I think, I think you characters. upgraded when you started telling me and Ev stories. <laughs> well, he was, it was more or less of a wild west <laughs> rough and tumble. Yeah. I grew up on elf stories. Yeah. 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 I, I finally hit the jackpot, really, with the elf stories because I had a great kind of a format. Uh, that I, uh, by this time, I had three boys to tell stories to, you know, um, 
Everett being the youngest, and Darwin in the middle, and and Walker the oldest. But they could all enjoy stories because all the elf stories were about them. They all started with them getting ready to walk to school in the morning from our house here in Amarillo. Well, supposedly. But uh, there was a magical elf. (laughs) Allegedly. That would appear on their way to school and always get them disrupted. And they would have adventures that I would have to, I was, making up as I went along, (laughs) doing the best I could. But it helped that I had kind of a scaffolding of we'd end up in a magic place and there was a, there was always a kind of nonsensical universe that they had to walk through with portable waterfalls and uh, anything I could just pop into my head. And then I added characters as we went along, like there was a, uh, a man sitting at a desk at the end of a, like a big warehouse. Who knows what he was doing? <laughs> he was reading, and he was turning yeah, the pages, pages very, very slowly. slowly. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so they always had to go and interrupt this guy because they needed help from him in order to get out of the endless warehouse, and. Usually a volunteer would yeah. appear. We had a system for selecting who would It was a democratic to. process. Yeah. Everett and I and was it usually... was Darwin who usually insisted on actually going and talking to the guy. Yeah, I somehow always got picked to be the one who did. <laughs> but it was, it was in, you know, at a very young age, very... Uh, entertaining because the central character, aside from us, was uh, the you know title character, the elf. <laughs> the elf yeah. who was yeah. He usually up, he only appeared twice in the story. Usually, yeah. and he was a morally <laughs> ambiguous character. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was a trickster. You guy. couldn't tell. He would he would not survive cancel culture. I would think <laughs> he took us behind a tree like he was gonna like lead us on an adventure, and then he just disappeared while we had to find our way out of a cavern. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. He appeared at the very beginning and, and it, typically at the end. And was he friend or foe? That's part of the imagination. You don't know. <laughs> I also remember uh, they, Pumpkinhead Charlie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep, Pumpkin like, it was Charlie, a pumpkin yeah. that we keep dribbling like a basketball. Well, he was half right, basketball, right. half <laughs> Was he half basketball? Yeah, one half was, was basketball and one half was pumpkin. And I believe his face was on the basketball side. <laughs> right. So his catchphrase. So not on my face. Face boy, <laughs> that was his catchphrase. Not on my face, boy. <laughs> and remember, um, he also we also had the 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 man who drove the taxi. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That had the uh, that had the pilot's goggles. Yeah, he on had his an head. aviator cap. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He would appear later in the story. Oh, and what about the old uh, woman with her bulldog? Yeah, the woman oh, yeah. in curlers. Woman in curlers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And no matter where the story was, she always seemed to be somewhere lurking around. Yeah, there. like the the vast majority of these featured plot lines that were somewhat ridiculous. In, in, in that there was always somebody saying, "Help! Help! Help!" 
help. And so we would select a volunteer a to go check it out. I was usually the volunteer. <laughs> and right. it was always some TV playing like a, you know, like a, a show or something. I, I remember like a, mo- a movie with somebody saying, help, help, help. Or I remember or on time it a was typical like, example being a child who is being forced to eat his peas saying help help <laughs> help right. and, and the woman in curlers was his mother trying to feed him who was not pleased by Darwin poking <laughs> his head through the window. And though he would send Otis after the boys and they would narrowly escape by jumping over the fence or something like that. One time it was a parrot in a room that was saying help 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 I remember yeah. that one yeah yeah, it was it was the old lady in Curler's parrot. She had a pet parrot. And I, I, I remember the little light that we had that we would like yeah. put in the middle of the, the room campfire. For the campfire. We had like a just like what what was it was that light it was a a light that was built into an attachment to stick on your book as you were reading in bed at night. Oh, and it would that's it was right. called like my little reader light or you know some kind of branded thing and. And we instead just crumpled it up in its own uh, uh, extension cord, and and it looked kind of like a campfire when we set it in the middle of the lambskin rug in our bedroom. And that's where we sat and told the stories, all kind of gathered around. And, <laughs> yeah. and I can tell you, you boys were a little bit job where it'd be at rapt attention. Oh, yeah. Well, and I that mean, that just... typically would be the setting for you to tell a night story with a K. A I night. did. That was my final series yeah. um, because we had everybody, all of y'all were reading by that time, I think. And I think uh, Walker had gotten interested in science fiction, and so I made up a, a kind of a vague medieval, almost. I want to want to compare it to Game of Thrones, but I mean, you can yeah, kind absolutely. of look at it in a sort of a quasi medieval selling. We had the Green Knight. We had all three of the boys plus their Chester, yeah. who was the. Uh, Kind of the Sir uh, Chester, oafish. who was an oafish pig riding knight, who was, <laughs> yeah. uh, in retrospect, clearly a stand-in for Dad, because it was funny because exactly. Dad was in the story. There was the White Knight was, uh, I think, the um, the <laughs> Wait, father. You cast yourself as the White Knight. <laughs> well, he, yeah, there was a White Knight and a Green well, Knight, and there was there was yeah, there was a White Knight, a Black Knight, and a Green Knight, which is mimics Arthurian imagery because I, I think Arthurian which uh, I I use some Arthurian yeah. imagery and I use some science fiction I mean kind of a most storytelling I, f- I found out over time is a mishmash of a lots of different sources what every one of us as humans takes as their various influences then you recycle that and I'm sure the Arthurian legends were recycled stories from long before they ever got recorded or written down just kind of like you know homer was homer really a person or was it just a homeric tradition of hundreds of years well, of reciting it was first on the tracy of- ullman show and then they they spun off the simpsons as their own <laughs> uh, but that was you know it might as well be ancient history right. now so. but rather than take <laughs> things like that seriously and saying going and looking for troy and places like that like people have done 
I like to think of, of it, this is the way humans evolved and they told stories. And Homer, who who knows whether it was a real person or not? I mean, it's like arguing about uh, was Hippocrates really the father of medicine or did he exist or was he just kind of a made-up character? Well, the point is, is we all need those stories. And whoever wrote down the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, generations of people have benefited from that. I mean, did Cersei turn his Odysseus's men into pigs? Of course not. But it's nice to think about those possibilities, just like it's <laughs> nice to think about about an elf who can disappear and you know, cause adventures. And whatever the case, you guys remember that, and you will maybe incorporate it into your own stories. Who knows? It was worth it. Absolutely. And, and I, got you, I got you all to listen and pay attention. That's true. Is it really possible to cross a pumpkin with a basketball? <laughs> I'm still... It is in my story. <laughs> I got that written down as one of my questions. I just don't see how that would work as like a scientific, like. Well, Darwin, well you're a hopeless logician, Darwin. spherical. So I don't see what the problem is. Well, can you imagine a portable waterfall? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a that was a good one. <laughs> okay, um, so let's see. Favorite cockroach? What's your favorite? Yeah, cockroach? what's your favorite? That was what I was. I, I like the Amer I, the American cockroach is the prettiest. <laughs> it's kind of a iridescent orange, and it's got long antenna and. It can flatten itself so much it can almost go underneath any closed door. I mean, a remarkable beast, uh, and it can survive radiation. And it's hard to kill, and they, they'll um, and they'll outlast humans, of course. I mean, they may be the dominant life form in a few million years. Who knows? But I like the American much better than the short, ugly German cockroach. <laughs> Well, let's not get racist. Uh. And they can fly. And they're pretty. <laughs> yeah. They're all characteristics of a good cockroach. <laughs> okay, I have one more question. Uh, you're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise. It's crawling toward you. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back. The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over. But it what? can't, not without your help. But you're not helping. Why is that? Hmm, since I don't have any cruelty in me... <laughs> The only thing I can think of is that for some reason I thought the t turtle was better off on his back <laughs> than I than he would with his in, being on his belly because I have I have no uh, ability to conceive of cruelty for his own sake like that. Maybe it's a weakness, but I like to think of it as a strength. So <laughs> the reason why I didn't is maybe maybe he was in a puddle of water. I don't know. Yeah, what, what's the answer to that? <laughs> it's it's uh, the Voigt-Kampf test from Blade Runner, uh, which is designed to 
uh, detect whether dad is a replicant or not. <laughs> oh, well, am I a replicant? I, I feel like that was inconclusive because it's designed to provoke an emotional response, but yours was very reasoned and logical. So, I don't know. You, are, you might be well, a replicant. This, <laughs> so it's like the test that Captain Kirk cheats on to become right, a Starship. Yeah, yeah. It's, very, it's a similar yeah. uh, science Dad's pre-brain. Blade Runner pop culture is still <laughs> well, like, original I Blade Runner is still late in Blade Blade pop culture. <laughs> I'll have to watch. I'll have to watch that movie again. It was a oh, good yeah, movie. Yeah, it was great. I'm not a fan. I find it slow. <laughs> I've seen things. So I have off a question. The shoulder of a yes. Run. So. Uh, Moving into, you know, when we were getting older, uh, and can't be easy to raise three teenagers, um, did you have any guiding principles of maintaining uh, a family as the father? Did you have anything that you would pass on to future generations that helped make that possible? I think I do. Um, <clears throat> I think parenting is very much of a, of a, I won't call it a crapshoot, but it's trial and error as much as anything. I knew what didn't work by some of my experiences as a kid. Um, my father was a traditional, you know, the father is the hammer and the child is the nail. And, you know, they, he, he had a way of, uh, and I, I loved him very much, but he, he could belittle you in a way that I remembered. And I decided that's one thing I would never do with human, my children, my sons, because I don't think humans respond very well to humiliation. I, I like to think that I supported you guys and let you make your own decisions for the most part. And I'd help, but um, a difference between my wife, who is a wonderful mother, and me is, is I said, I, I always said, I don't give out unsolicited advice. I think that's generally good, a good advice to take for anybody, including if you're raising kids. Be there if, if you need something, but um, don't spend all your time saying, if I were you, I would do this. I think it's important to let, to let people develop on their own and become what they are and be happy with who you are and how you're, and we're all different. Uh, everything we, we do is different and, uh, different ones of us, uh, I could love you all equally, but I don't view you all equally. Y'all have, you have different qualities different uh, positives and negatives and that's what makes you human which one is the best <laughs> Wilder. you're all the best <laughs> yeah. I, I will say it was harder to get to tell stories as the as you guys got older and which you'll find if you become storytellers yourselves i found that in a long complex story like the um like the night stories, the three boys and Sir Chester and all their night adventures, I would start getting the uh, timelines uh, uh, 
uh, mixed up, and I couldn't remember the last thing. And but you guys, with your young human fresh brains, oh, don't you remember? You were over at this castle here. I mean, so oh yeah, yeah, that's right. And I couldn't. Uh, it was easier with elf stories because every one of those was this newly made up, and they weren't interconnected. But when you tell a long story series of stories like that or I, I like when I read the Harry Potter books I, I see a classic storyteller she was making it up as she went along and she didn't have the idea of the last book in mind when she wrote the first book no way I, I'm a storyteller enough I can recognize a accretion story <laughs> set yeah. when I see it because that's what that was but it makes it gives me incredible admiration for people like Charles Dickens who wrote in serial form for a magazine. <laughs> I mean, he couldn't go back and change the plot line if he had to. <laughs> it was already in print. So I think to myself, what a master storyteller and writer and a no chance to edit. <laughs> well, he was getting paid by the word, wasn't he? Yeah, he yeah. did. He did. That's why his books uh, are the, so long. <laughs> the Strand magazine, they paid him. And he, so when he wrote Tale of Two Cities or Great Expect, it was in serial form. You know? <laughs> People would stand in line at the supermarket or whatever to get the latest installment. Is that how they consume Dickens standing in line at the supermarket? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not actually standing in line, but they had to stand in line to get the, the Strand. I mean, it was like... Uh, television in our era. I mean, what did they have? They had yeah, magazines, binging books. Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> they had newspapers, uh, you know, but opera. I mean, you can stand. Do you think there's a consistent Dickens cinematic universe the way there is a Marvel cinematic universe? Just yeah, without the characters the pop up in other different stories. Yeah, are they going to have an Avengers think, of Dickens someday? I think not really. I, um, I, I think if you look at uh, some of his best work, uh, I would include Great Expectations and probably Tell Two Cities of Pickwick Papers. Uh, you can see a comparable universe, but it wasn't peopled by the same Maybe characters. the boy from Great Expectation grows up to be screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> yep. Is there not going to be a show-off between Mr. Darby and the Ghost of Christmas yet to come? Or, uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that would be cool. I like. I personally like Mr. Jaggers, the... Uh, the inscrutable lawyer in Great Expectations. Maybe that's who I was you know, thinking that, of. I can't remember. <laughs> the guy who bites his thumb. Yeah, yeah, the biting the thumb <laughs> and it sticks out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, last question. What's your favorite fungus? Yeah. Um, you know, I would have to say if I had to choose, I would pick histoplasmosis. Because, well, of uh, course you histo- would say that. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> Typical Histoplasma capsulatum. It's a, uh, it solely lives in the Mississippi Valley drainage system of the central United States. And they don't even know what the fungus, the mushroom uh, form of it is. It probably lives as a wild mushroom, probably in a relatively wet forested area. And then, of course, the yeast form can cause a, a human disease, uh, which is histoplasmosis. It's a very fascinating fungus infection. There are very few fungus infections of humans. but Why, why is it so histoplasm- fascinating of an infection? 
it uh, can do a lot of different things, include, including causing uh, lung infections, but it can also cause ulcers in the intestinal tract, mouth ulcers, uh, chronic meningitis, fever. It's uh, just for an infectious disease guy. It's an interesting <laughs> pathogen, interesting disease. I don't see it much because we, we're too dry out here. It mostly lives in forested areas. To bring this but, full circle, does it make you leak out of your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Only no. if you've been shot in uh, World War II by a German Luger. <laughs> well, I I did see that case personally, so I can I can vouch for the story. And what a great story if you're going to tell stories to patients, right? Well, I would be remiss in uh, bringing this up, uh, in not bringing this up. So I, I wanted to make the the interview primarily about you, Dad, and your your role as a father and a storyteller and everything. But I also, um, by means of uh, or by way of wishing you a happy Father's Day, is to say thank you for the role model that you have. Um, you have been for me as, as uh, speaking now as a father. I uh, I am on the other side of that relationship for the first time, and uh, it's a it's a profoundly life changing relationship for me. It's been something that has totally changed the way I see the world and interact with it, and in uh, in particular the way that I see family and and everything. But um, every time I'm um, being a dadu to to Wilder, I um, I am I am uh, thinking of you and and your relationship to me and to all of us and and that role that you set for us. So thank you and happy Father's Day, Dad. <laughs> You're well. <coughs> Make your own stories too, because I know he'll. Yeah, love absolutely. <laughs> Slip in a cockroach who crashes. Through <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I did do the the epic poem of the the cockroach. Yeah. Uh, for Dad's uh, party that one time, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was Edgar Allan Poe's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Can you edit that into the tail end of the podcast? <laughs> I don't know. Was there a recording of it somewhere? There, there is, but don't. It's it's long. It's. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, that's for the subscribers. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie. Happy Father's Thank Day, you. Dad. Yeah. I loved every minute of uh, raising you guys as a, as a dad, and I tried to make the most of it, even for somebody who's gone a lot. But um, I felt like the time we did spend together was, uh, was good. It wasn't just... Uh, passive you forced me to use my brain to to make up things to entertain you guys <laughs> you're a great kid love you dad happy father's love day you, and happy dad. father's day love to you, you as well too. walk love all yeah, of you thanks so how was that it was good. Guys? we what, didn't have any audio your, from dad the whole time yeah favorite fungus <laughs> oh speaking of fungus oh here's a great book <laughs> In, it is fabulous. Entangled Life by Merlin. How fungi make <laughs> our worlds change our minds and shape our futures by Merlin, Merlin Drake, who is a that could, medieval wizard. It sounds like a. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like 
was later introduced as I, Merlin's You have to like name. hit like level 20 before you can play as Melvin or Merlin Shell. That was Drake. before he was known as Merlin the Fanciful. But, uh... It's a great book. I think we should has, have it as our initial family Okay. And do a yeah. monthly book study. I'll send you all copies I, if you'll agree I, to that. Very nice, but I've already read it. Oh, you have? Have you really? No. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what? We can, we, can take, we can take turns picking books. Yep. Okay. Dust copy Watch out college. For, you'll man. get that book. Well, boys, thanks. Love, Love you guys. You and thank you for interviewing your dad for my of Father's course. Day podcast. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education.